Make It Right, the manufacturing podcast. At the success or failure of a manufacturing plant is the fact that the people who know best how it really operates, what's really happening day to day, are the people on the floor, the supervisors. And so, as leaders, if you can create a transparent, open, two-way communication flow where you genuinely are interested in improving things, solving problems, making things better, then you'll find those things out. The best plants are the ones where people are open to understanding how it truly works. And what are the things that are getting in the way of people making the plant run faster, better, hit schedule, create better products, better quality, right first time. Welcome to the Make It Right podcast. I'm Janet Eastman. And this week on the show, we are talking pursuing world-class leadership. And that quote is from our guest, Peter Gibbons, who is a business and supply chain executive and he is currently CEO of U.S. Tire Distributor, Tire Hub. Peter's been on Make It Right a number of times. It's great to have him back on the show. So welcome, Peter. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. You're very welcome. So, Peter, your comments are in line with everything that Kevin Snook has discussed here on Make It Right and in his book. So I'm really excited to have both of you on the show today to talk about effective leadership. Welcome, Kevin. Good to see you again. Thank you very much, Janet. So more and more, I think the world needs really great leaders. We need them in our politics. We need them in our business. And we even need them in our families. So what does make a really good 21st century leader? And I think this should be an open discussion. We'll start with you, Peter. But Kevin, by all means, jump in when you're ready. Yeah, I, I grew up you know, uh, as a tail end of baby boomer. I'm, I'm at the end of the baby boom generation. So I grew up in that time when so many of our leaders and so many of our examples were people who had been in the service, been in the forces, lived through the Second World War. You have that generation of leaders who experienced leadership in that environment, plus their children, the baby boomers. And I look back at that kind of education of leadership, and it was a lot of focus on authority and hierarchy and, and directiveness. Uh, the 21st century is very different. I think it's a lot more nuanced. I think the speed of change, the speed of action is much, much faster. There's so much more focus rightfully on inclusion and hearing multiple voices and hearing different voices. And then, you know, while every generation wants to have purpose, I think in the 21st century, people are looking for much more direction of what the purpose is that you're projecting as a leader and is it worthwhile to them? So I think leadership has some things that are stay constant, but I do think there are differences in the 21st century that make it a more nuanced and, and vibrant task for us as leaders to, to pursue. Yeah, we're not following that, um, that mentality of, you know what, like during the First and Second World War, it was you just follow the orders because this is the plan and we have to go there. Um, now people want a lot more out of life. And Kevin, you see that all the time. Yeah, and I see that in different countries and different cultures as well. And it, it's slower moving into some of the cultures. But um, so, for example, I, I do a lot of work in South Korea. And in South Korea, they're still very much into that kind of uh, autocratic system. And it's taking longer to break out of that. But um, in, in certain areas, we, we, 
breaking down those barriers that, uh, that Peter talked about and that, uh, that whole idea about being more of a servant leader and not so much of a heroic leader. Um, I think it, it, it's, it's becoming more important, but it's also becoming more, more obvious that companies need to do that because in order to get the most out of people, get the most out of the company, you need to be involving everybody these days. So what, what, is, what does servant leadership look like? I mean, from your standpoint, Peter, what does servant leadership look like? So I need to tell a story at this point, if that's okay. Yay! <laughs> you know, my, first, my first example, really, of leadership came from a, an interaction with my father when I was 15 years old. And my father was a principal of a school, and I was at a different school, and, and this particular day I decided to walk to his school so I could get a ride home. Right? And so I end up at his school, he's in his office, I walk in and he's on the phone and he's kind of thundering down the phone explaining something to someone and he comes off with the words, well, I've explained what needs to be done, you really need to step up and make this happen. So I, being 15, kind of ask him, hey, what's going on, Dad? And he explains that his school, this new school that he managed to get uh, built, uh, was significantly troubled by all of these issues that hadn't been resolved when they moved in. So he had this massive uh, punch list. So he personally had created the punch list. He'd walked the building and had typed out four pages of issues with the school. Now I'm 15, not particularly pleasant 15 year old, I'll, I'll admit it. And I tell him how wrong he is. I explain to him, it's not your job. Uh, you shouldn't be having to do this. It's the city architect. And he said, well, architect hasn't fixed it. Uh, I explain it's the county works engineer, right? Uh, he says, well, he hasn't fixed it. Well, then it's the Department of Public Works that they haven't fixed it. And finally, I say, look, Dad, you don't, under you don't understand. You shouldn't be doing this. The director of education should be fixing this. And he says, that's who I was just on the phone to. And I realize I've kind of gone too far. And he sighs and he just looks when he says, you know, Peter, let me tell you something. This is my school. These are my kids, these are my parents. They really don't care whose fault it is. They're really not interested in who I can blame. They just need me to go get it fixed. And then he paused again and he said, now, do you still want that ride home? And uh, I did, quietly. And, and the reason I tell that story is, to me, that was the very first moment in my leadership journey where someone explained, you know, it's not about being right and knowing who to blame. It is about taking personal responsibility and seeing yourself as a servant to other people. He could have gone to the parents and told them whose fault it was. That's not how he looked at the world. His job was to represent them and get them the best possible school he could, the best possible education. And, and it was a humbling experience. And the older I got, the more embarrassed I was by my own attitude. But the more that story stuck with me, and I've told that story so many times. Doesn't it just resonate that way with, um, with two ways to, I, I often use it, two ways to use data. One way you can use data is to look at the gaps and beat people up based on it. The other way to use it is to look for an opportunity. And either way, the number is the same, right? It, it says that your, your production line is running at 60% efficiency, right? You can say, well, it's terrible, it should be 70. Or you could say, well, 
and no, we've got we've got a gap here of ten, and that's an opportunity to really get better. And uh, so it, it's it's a very similar thing. Your your dad was basically saying someone is accountable for it, but that's not the important thing. What's important is we get together and get it fixed, and that's a fantastic lesson. And how do you get people to actually take that responsibility? I mean. Peter, your dad took responsibility. He says, it's my school. It's my job to get this fixed because who cares whose fault it is? How do you get people in a factory to know that they are allowed to take that responsibility? Oh, that's a fantastic question. I think a lot of it comes back to the tone that you're setting around good news and bad news. You know, we, we tend to encourage people to view information as good and bad. And or we do that often. And the trouble with that is people, none of us like bad news and people don't want to bring bad news. And as soon as you've defined it as bad news, as opposed to it's just the truth, it's an opportunity, it's a chance to improve. I mean, no matter which way you describe it, if you describe it in a sense of being neutral or being positive, I think you get a very different response out of people. If you set that tone that there is good and bad information, to Kevin's point, it's the same piece of information. You know, do, I, do I put a label on it saying this is bad? Who wants to come forward? Who wants to step up and take a risk? Who wants to step up and say, hey, I could fix that, or I could do something about that? Or even, you know, I don't know how to fix that. Wouldn't it be great if someone who did came and helped us fix it? And I think you've got to help people treat the issue as just the issue. It's just, it's just what it is. And that lack of information isn't helping anybody. If you don't know as a leader that that problem is there, then it just continues to perpetuate itself and, and you don't know what's going wrong. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You had a great quote in one of the podcasts that you were on with me. Uh, you said, my destiny is in your hands. Your destiny is in my hands. And that's what this is all about, isn't it? Well, it is. It's teamwork, isn't it? It's, you know, you, you don't want to play for the soccer team for someone saying, you know, I'll just do my part, the rest of you do yours. You, you want to all feel you're part of the same integrated uh, system that's going to get some results. And you know, I think we, uh, we, we owe it to ourselves to help people see that there's nothing wrong with someone else having their, your destiny in their hands and their destiny in yours. It is for part of being a team and being a leader you should be encouraging people to see that you're collectively in it together. There's only one prize, there's only one agenda, we're only one team. Uh, let's not split it out, let's make people pull together towards the bigger prize. So Peter, how is it as a leader, do you strive to, to hit that sort of perfect balance between you know, setting the direction and being the leader, but letting people actually take control of their own destiny at certain point on, points in, in the in the path. How, how do you do that? How do you strive for that? Well, I'm glad you said strive because strive implies you don't always succeed and I, I'll be the first to say that I'm, 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 I'm as flawed as anybody else in that, in that uh, dimension. The way I describe or define leadership or being a leader is the role of a leader is to help a group of people achieve an objective or a goal that they would be unlikely to achieve left to their own devices. And why do I say that? I say that because I have a leader. If, if they're likely to achieve it without you, you don't need the leader. There's no, there's no role for you. So you, if you start with that definition that people are striving towards something and you're there to help them achieve it, I think that's a very positive place to start. 
I think you're then going to come back and say, so what do they need? Uh, what do they need from me? And I think part of your job is to provide confidence, uh, remove fear, uh, provide the tools to do the job. You, know, you can be a, a great inspiration for people, but if you then don't provide the facilities and the tools for them to be successful, then that's, that's wasted. Uh, if you're providing people confidence, but your first instinct is to criticize and point out the flaws, then you know that, that creates some of that fear. That's not going to build confidence, it's going to create fear. So part of what I've always strived to do is, how do you help people be the heroes that they are naturally? I, I, I truly believe that people are naturally heroic. I absolutely believe that. People are naturally heroic. How do you help them bring out that natural heroic approach to things? Let them think clearly, let them think straight, let them take some accountability and responsibility for the problem. Let them step forward and say, I, I've got an idea. It might not work, but I've got an idea. Uh, you know, if you said to me I'd left a meeting and someone had a great idea and they didn't bring it out because of my behavior, to me that's, I'm sure Kevin would feel this having run factories, you, you, feel, you feel pretty bad about the fact that people who have ideas, they need to be able to express, they need to be able to dialogue and, and have conversations. Kevin, how do you set that tone? Removing that fear so that people actually feel that they can come forward in a meeting with the leaders in the room and say, you know, I really think maybe this is a good idea. How do you remove the fear of doing that? Yeah, we've talked about this before, and it's all about being able to listen. And I think that's where the patience comes in. You know, there's, there's, um, it, it's a culture, it's a learned behavior. And I, just, just recently, I was thinking, why would I, I went to, to work with a, a client of mine, and they were having a specific issue. And I, I came back home, and um, and I was talking to my wife about it, and I, I, she was. It was clear that I was passionate that there was this challenge in, in my, uh, my client. And she said, well, why do you care so much about it? Um, you know, and, and it was an area that I wasn't specifically responsible for. You know, they had a challenge in the market with one of their products and a, a non-governmental group had gone in and done a survey and they'd kind of been battered by this survey. And, uh, and I was feeling aggrieved by it and because I knew that it was unjust. And she said, but, well, why do you care about that? You're not responsible for the sales and the marketing side of it. You're helping them with their production. And I said, I, you know, that, that's a really good question. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure why I'm so passionate or, or I'm taking ownership for their business. And then I look back on when did it start with me? And it was when I started working with P&G, Procter & Gamble, early in my career. And... Right at the beginning of that, they, they started calling me an owner. You know, you were an area owner for, an area, for a part of the factory. You, were a, um, you, you became a, a, an equipment owner for part of the equipment. Or, and then as I grew in the role, I was a business owner. And I, and I never actually owned any of those things, right? I wasn't actually, you know, I, I didn't get any direct reward for that particular thing. But I started to feel like an owner. And through those 17 years, that ownership feeling just grew. And then I ended up taking that with me. So I think as leaders, we help people become owners by treating them like owners, yeah. by giving them the opportunity to take accountability and, and to make some decisions and to make mis mistakes and then help you fix the mistakes that have been made. It's, it's, it's about interacting. And a big part of that, Peter said it beautifully, it, for me, it's around help and support, right? 
As a leader, we set a very clear direction. We want to make sure that we are inspiring people to move in that direction. But then the biggest role we play as a leader is to help and support them to get there. And that idea around bringing out the hero in, in every individual is just wonderful. And so I, to me, it's around listening to people, finding out what they really need to be able to achieve those things that they wouldn't achieve without your help and then just putting that in place. Peter, you're nodding there. <laughs> yeah, there's it, 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 lots of thoughts going around, Kevin. You, it's interesting, you, uh, you can say to a group of people, uh, you, you, have to make, you have to reach this target, you have to hit this number. And the first reaction is likely to be, we don't know how to do it, or it can't be done, right? If you, if you position it the wrong way. If you persuade people that it's absolutely necessary, it's absolutely necessary. You'll get a different response, right? Or if you say to people, hey, if we had to take this number from X to Y, what would you need? How would you do it? You get a completely different response. And, and often you see people, you know, they, they drift to the first one because they short circuit. It's, it's very easy to say, well, quality needs to be 99%. We're at 90. And the person says, well, we, we, well, we were 85 last year. And suddenly you're in a debate about the number. And what's behind it is the person thinks, oh my gosh, if I don't know how to do this, I'm a failure. If you said to the person, hey, by the way, if we're at 90, by the way, that was great, you got us from 85, what would we need to get to 99? Oh, well, let me tell you, we'd need to replace line one, we'd have to put a new widget on line two, we'd need to get built some training. Suddenly it's all coming out. Similarly, if you were to say, oh my gosh, we're in such a situation if we can't get our, you know, our, our quality from X to Y, I think we're going to lose this account. That word ownership comes up. People are like, oh, really? I didn't realize it was so important. Oh, wow. I thought 90 was good. I didn't realize that without it being at 99, we might lose one of our accounts. So how you position these big challenges creates a very different response from people. And, and too often, you'll see someone, maybe it's inadvertent, maybe it's instinctive, maybe it's trained, it comes out in a manner which feels too much like a challenge to the person on the other end. And their first reaction is often, can't be done, don't know how to do it. And suddenly you're in this negative cycle. Whereas actually what you're trying to do is solve a very cool problem. You're trying to do something that hasn't been done before. And I love what Kevin said about ownership, getting people to feel trust and ownership of their part of the solution is, is such an important part of this. So how do you do that? Like, what's that key trait to getting you to, to get there? Kevin, go ahead. Yeah, well, let, let me ask Peter a little bit of a question, a follow-up on that, if I can. It, it's, it's really around, you were talking about sharing information with people so that they understand why, why that is so important, you know, to, to get together and achieve that particular goal. Um, but a lot of companies that I go into, they seem to have a challenge with transparency. You know, they don't want to share too much information, whether it's financial information or, or challenges or vulnerabilities, you know, because something's not going exactly the way. How do you bring, how do you have the confidence to be more transparent in an organization and, and bring that? Because that's a critical part of the ownership that, uh, that Janet was talking about. You know, I think I was very fortunate in my early years at ICI, you know, huge chemical company running big, you know, they, they had big hazardous chemical plants and safety was, a, was such an important part of our, our heritage and our culture. And not being transparent in a highly hazardous environment 
is really not a good thing. And, and of course, we were never perfect in anything that we did, but we, we strived heroically in, in so many ways and did so many amazing things. But I do remember the idea that if there was one thing you were always going to be transparent about, it was something that was technical, either safety or engineering related. And, and I remember seeing things come out in meetings, which the only reason they came out was because we created a culture that said, if it's safety related, if it's to do with how we run this high hazard facility, it needs to be on the table. We can't keep that quiet. And then, then you start to see other examples, Kevin, where you think, well, that's interesting. Uh, Joe's not sharing that information about his financial project or his other thing. And you began to see these conflicts or, or contrasts rather. And so I, I would say my real instruction in that area was growing up in ICI and seeing how powerful transparency could be. But I take it a bit further. When I, when I interview for leadership, there's three things I always tell people I'm looking for. The first is I'm not hiring you to have answers. I'm hiring you to know what are the problems, the opportunities, the issues which is very hard for some people because they've been raised differently. They've been raised, if you don't have the answer, keep quiet. Don't raise the problem. If you flip it around and say, I'm paying you to tell me what's broken, what needs to change, what needs to improve, you're actually giving someone a task they can accomplish. Telling someone you have to have all the answers, that's impossible. Then the second thing, back to the transparency thing, is I look for what I call working with your door open, your windows open, the, the, the shades drawn wide. You want people to work in a fashion where we can see what each other's doing, that we're transparent, that it's on the table. And those two things feed off each other. If we're an organization that's happy to talk about problem solving, then that helps be transparent. And then the third thing I look for and I insist on is we all have to be able to sleep at night. I don't want anybody lying in bed at night beside themselves because they're behind on a project or because they're, they don't know how to solve a problem or the numbers aren't adding up. Because all that happens when they eventually tell you is the first question you ask is, how long have you known? And if they say yesterday, you say, good, we're on it early. If it's, well, I've been lying in bed worrying about this for six weeks. First of all, you've probably done them and their family tremendous damage. And secondly, you've just lost six weeks. So I, I, I say to people, you know, be a problem solver, bring problems forward, be, be, help us be a problem solving culture be transparent and, and let's all go home at night and get a good night's sleep so we can come back and be the best we are. And if we can't get a good night's sleep, put your hand up and say, I have a problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Kevin, have you seen that where, you, well, you must have, when you've been out there talking to leaders and, and their teams, you know, the fear of bringing things forward and sitting on things for weeks. Yeah, and that fear comes from both ways. It comes from the individuals about bringing things forward, but it also comes from the leaders about sharing certain things. And, um, you know, I, I've always felt that for a frontline employee to be a real, to really take an ownership role and feel accountability, they need to know what's going on. Yeah. And so one, one example of that is budget management. A lot of companies I work with, especially a lot of private companies, are really afraid of sharing their numbers, their, their actual um, their profit and their loss and their, you know, the budgets for each department and what are we spending money on and why are we choosing to spend on this and not spend on that? And there's a real fear about sharing that information. And I think that creates a lot of the fear in the, in the individuals, because if you're not allowed to ask about money, if you're not allowed to bring up this subject because it might cost too much, then you're never going to come forward with it. And if you're coming up with a proposal, like I really need a new tool to do this job better, 
but I know that if I ask for that new tool, people are going to say to me, well, why do you need to spend the money, right? Then you're, you're never going to bring forward that particular issue. And so the transparency starts from the top again. We need to be able to show people that we're open and that we're willing to talk about the difficult things for them to be able to feel comfortable. And, and, and Peter mentioned this before around the leadership behaviors, but vulnerability I see as a real strength. I think if you as a leader can say, I don't know all the answers, I'm not exactly sure what we're gonna do next, but I wanna have a conversation about it and I wanna get some input from other people, that vulnerability itself opens up the organization to, to completely new ideas that you would never have thought of before. Mm -hmm. Peter, you're nodding. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting to use the example of financial information because telling people they can't spend is a great control system. It, it, stops, it stops difficult decisions coming to you. It's, a, it's such a negative thing, but, but it is absolutely true, Kevin, that quite often we don't tell people things. People then, I don't want to be the one coming forward asking for the new widget. That means you don't talk about the fact the machine's broken. That means you don't talk about the fact that it could, you know, the machine might fail and then you're really in trouble. So all these things all spiral to bad places. They don't, they don't fail safe, they fail badly. But it's amazing how practiced some of these tendencies are. Uh, you know, there's a difference between a company's secrets and what is, you know, sensitive, confidential information. That doesn't mean that people can't know it. It just means you handle it with care. That's all it means. There are very few secrets in a business, very, very few. It's just that generally information needs to stay in the family, but we've got to use it constructively. And, you know, I think too often data is seen as power. You know, too often people think if I don't talk about money and tell people there isn't any, they won't, they won't ask. And if they don't ask, you don't have to make a decision. I once had a, a, a chief engineer, uh, he couldn't get this particular uh, uh, capital project uh, approved by the CFO. And he came to me one day and he said, Peter, I've got a real problem. This has been sitting on the CFO's desk for, for weeks. We have got to get these pipelines changed. They're mild steel, they're on the roof, they're in Puerto Rico. This is a problem, I've got to get it done. And I looked at Larry and I said, hey Larry, let me tell you a secret. Our, uh, our CFO was trained as a chemical engineer. That's all I'm going to say. So Larry walks upstairs, walks into his office, says, hey, as the chief engineer, and you being a former chemical engineer, you'll know why I need to get these pipes changed. Are you going to sign it or not? It was signed within five seconds. <laughs> because he fought the battle on his own terms. He didn't fight it on, there's no money, it can't be done. He went in boldly and said, hold on a second. It's sitting on your desk. You know what the right thing to do is here. That's a great story. <laughs> Um, I want to move things to where we are right now, because we're living in, as they call it, extraordinary times. Nobody, none of us have been through this before, but how hard is it to lead and to get the information that you need from your team members right now in the time of COVID-19? Let me start maybe in an unusual place. I, I don't think it's, if you're leading, you can't ever say it's difficult. If you're in charge, uh, and I, that's where I start from, and I, and I thought about this uh, quite a bit recently because someone asked me a question about it. Must be really tough just now. And said, well, no, this is the job, and, and it sounds a bit trite, but there was a, a, a CEO I worked for, a guy called Dennis Henderson, who, when he was interviewed, as when he got this huge, huge job, he was interviewed by the Financial Times, and they asked him, "Did you get any advice?" And he said, "Yes, I spoke to all of my predecessors who were still alive." 
And I got the same advice from all of them. And the advice was relish the job, relish it. Huh. That was all the advice he got. He said, that was the only thing I got that was common. In other words, this is a privilege. The circumstances will be what they're going to be. You need to relish this every minute and have no regrets at the end. Now with COVID, you know, the, 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 the part that to me makes it most difficult is as a, as a situation for the company is that you're talking about individuals, health and safety, right? And we're also thinking about you know, people's livelihoods in a different way. And so the way we've tackled the entire hub is to make sure that everything we do, we ask ourselves in 18 months time, how will our customers and how will our employees judge us? Because that is what's really going to make the difference. As leaders, 18 months from now, will we be judged as having treated this you know, fairly, well, effectively with the right priorities? Have we cared for our customers? Have we taken care of our employees, our hubbers? And if we pass those two tests, then, then I'll be quite happy. But I relish this job every single day. And COVID makes it more complex and makes the stakes a little bit higher. But it, it is what it is, and you don't you don't wish this on anybody or anything. You don't want this to happen. But as a leader, this is what you've signed up for. Well, and I think that's interesting because um, if you look at it as something fearful, then it's going to be something fearful. If you look at it as just another business challenge, even though it's kind of out there, I mean, then you can actually relish your job and go, okay, how are we going to tackle this? So just down the corridor from me is Matt Marine, who from day one, he and I have been in the office uh, every day, just about since this started, uh, with Chris, our, 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 our head of HR. You know, Matt tracks 1,500 people every single day. Every single day we track everybody, 1,400 people, because we want to know that the single most important thing every day is, are they safe, are they well, if someone's not well, what are we going to do? If we can get that part right, the rest of it will work out. Wow. Kevin, do you have any final thoughts for us? Yeah, well, on that one, um, Peter said it earlier on. If you imagine you're walking into a jungle, if there's a path there already, you don't need a leader to take you in there. Mm-hmm. You know, the leader is the one who goes into the place where the path has never been cut before. And that comes with risk and it comes with, you know, new challenges that you've never seen before. And so we're in a perfect time for leadership in COVID because none of us have ever seen this before to this extent, but that's when leaders step up. And so it's a matter of being able to understand that there's a risk there, that we're going to do things that are different. But uh, what I've found is the companies that are, are really working the best in this are the ones that already had some good thoughts, some good practices in place, and they're just elevating that. This is magnifying those practices. And uh, I know that in Peter's company, Entire Hub, they already have, you know, he's been there for a while. They already have some great practices in place. So I'm not surprised that they're taking COVID and really using it, you know, to, to improve. And, you know, I, I was working with a, a gym at one point, and when, uh, when COVID hit, that gym closed down. And because people weren't allowed to go in there. But instead of saying, look, we're closing down, you're not, you know, you're not allowed to come in anymore, but you're still paying your dues. They said, look, immediately we're going to put all our trainers on to getting new training programs in place. And we're going to, you know, pipe ourselves into your living room three times a week. And you can actually do the training with us. And they made a real effort to still serve during a difficult time. 
And I think that's, that's exactly the, the type of behaviors and the leadership behaviors we want to see during COVID. Mm -hmm. Peter, do you have any final thoughts? We're almost out of time, but just uh, final thoughts from you. Leading is a privilege. You know, leading other people is the, one of the biggest privileges you can have. It's a bit like being a parent, being a father, being like a, 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 a mother. It's a privilege and you, you need to relish it and enjoy it. Uh, to lead people and help them you know, achieve things. Uh, you just got to wake up every day and say, "This is this is a great thing to be able to do, a cool thing." And if you can't do that, I suggest you do something else. But, uh, <laughs> but it's a great thing. But I really appreciate the chance to come and talk with you and uh, be part of the show. Peter, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. You have some great stories, and uh, I just love chatting with you. So continued success with Tire Hub, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Thank so you, Johnny. It's been a pleasure. So thanks to both of you for being so generous with your time, sharing your insights today on Make It Right. Peter Gibbons is the CEO of Tire Hub. Kevin Snook is a leadership advisor and author of Make It Right, Five Steps to Align Your Manufacturing Business from the Front Line to the Bottom Line. And if you'd like to listen to other episodes of Make It Right, Peter's got four of them back there in the catalog. So check them out. There's some great stories in there. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube. And every week we announce our new shows on Twitter and LinkedIn. I'm Janet Eastman. Thanks so much for listening to the Make It Right podcast.